Uh, well, we are going to jump right into the very last four chapters of the book of Revelation. So if you have your uh, Bible with you, I invite you to open up to Revelation chapter 19. Uh, Revelation chapter 19 uh, through 22 uh, are the very last things in the Bible. So it should be really easy to find. Just flip probably the last two pages uh, in your Bibles. And if you didn't have a Bible, you can bring a, uh, use a pew Bible in front of you. Uh, these chapters are fascinating. They are uh, the end, the culmination of a big book, uh, and they show some fat, wonderful things in it. And so we want to start uh, just reading through the first six verses. Uh, I'm going to skip around in those six verses, all right? And so I'll kind of direct you to where I'm at. So here's how uh, it starts off in verse 1 of chapter 19. Uh, After this, I heard what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah. Let's all do that. Ready? One, two, three. Hallelujah. Perfect. Verse three, again, they shouted. Awesome. Verse four, the four elders and four living creatures fell down, worshiped God, was seated on the throne, and they cried out, Amen. Awesome. Verse 6, then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roar of rushing waters and like loud peals of thunder shouting one last time. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. This uh, opens up in chapter 19 in what's called the Hallelujah Chorus. Uh, And you can kind of see why, right? Because over and over and over again, we see this word, hallelujah. And people, they're shouting it. We're seeing different groups that we have been introduced along the way in the book of Revelation. And this word, hallelujah, it's an Old Testament word. Uh, In fact, this is the only time in the New Testament that it appears. Uh, It's a a Hebrew word. Uh, It literally means praise the Lord. Now, if some of you grew up in church, you used to sing a song uh, that went, Hallelujah, 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 the Lord. Okay, what you didn't know is, as you were competing with each other, you're really saying the same thing. Uh, you were saying, praise the Lord. Uh, and so that's uh, how you can kind of remember that word. It's appraising, there's, there's celebration, it's excitement. All right? And this is vastly different than what we've been reading in Revelation. Uh, If you remember in Revelation from about chapter 5 onwards, it's been a lot of doom and gloom, if you can almost call it that way. It's been a lot of things about all these bad things happening and how God is pouring out judgments upon the world. And we saw in the last chapter how Babylon has fallen, and the theme of that was fallen, fallen is Babylon, and people are mourning, and they're crying over the city and all of her abominations. But here in chapter 19, there's celebration. It's a different tone. And they have things to celebrate. They're celebrating a wedding. Right? And who doesn't like a good wedding, right? There's songs, there's dancing, there's often lots of food there. Right? Who doesn't like to go to a wedding? And uh, the Jewish people, they knew how to throw a wedding. Right? They, their weddings lasted multiple days. And so people are really excited. And this wedding that they are celebrating isn't just anybody's wedding. It is the wedding of the lamb to his bride, right? It's the wedding of Jesus to his church. And so there's celebration, there's excitement in the air because we're going to see out of the ashes of Babylon is going to rise this new city of Jerusalem. In verse 11 through uh, 16, we read this, I saw heaven standing open and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. 
With justice, he judges and wages wars. With his eyes are like that of blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns, and he has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe, dipped in blood, and in in his name is the word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses, and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. And coming out of his mouth was a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has this name written, King of Kings. And Lord of Lords. We see this one last terrifying image of Jesus. Uh, We've seen a couple of different images of Jesus throughout the book of Revelation. In chapter 1, we saw Jesus as God in all of his fullness and glory, and he's described as such in that chapter. Uh, Then in chapter 5, we see Jesus again, not as God, but as the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Lamb that was slain. Then in chapter 14, just last week, we saw Jesus as a reaper, ready for the harvest. And here we see Jesus as a warrior, ready for battle. The Jesus that we often picture, this Jesus that came the first time as an innocent babe, lying in a manger, as a poor man who went to the afflicted and the needy and served them. This Jesus that we often picture in our head is not the Jesus that's going to come back. The image of Jesus coming back isn't with arms stretched wide, but with judgment at hand. And he's coming with all kinds of wonderful imagery here. He's coming with an army at his back. He's coming dressed in a white robe dipped in blood. He is coming ready to tread out the winepress of the wrath of the Lord God Almighty. He is coming with a sword to judge the nations. And if you are on Jesus' side, you have nothing to be afraid of. But if you're not on Jesus' side, watch out. See, the armies of the world, they, they hear that Jesus is coming back, and they do not like it. This Jesus that's coming back, he wants to make sure you know exactly who he is. On his robe and on his thigh are written two names, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And the world does not like this idea. They do not want to admit Jesus as Lord. And even though they see Jesus coming in all of his glories, they do something not to worship him, but to fight against him. And in verse 19, we read that when they saw Jesus come and they saw the beasts and the kings of the earth and their armies, they gathered to wage war against the rider of the horse and the army that is behind him. So the kings of the earth, when they see Jesus in his glory, coming as a warrior, ready to give out judgment, what do they do? Rather than worshiping him, they decide to fight him. They gather together, they shake their fists at Jesus and say, come at us. And what we have here is depicted what maybe you've heard of Gog and Magog or the battle of Armageddon. And it's this final battle that we often imagine of the devil and his army versus the Lord Jesus and his army. But here's a little secret. There's not really a battle. See, when we think of battles of Armageddon, we think nuclear war and all these wonderful people fighting against each other. But that's not what happens here. 
And in verse 20, we're told, as they are gathering together to wage war, the beast was captured, the false prophet was captured, and they were thrown into the fiery lake. And in verse 22, the rest of the people, they're just killed by the sword coming out of the rider's mouth and the birds gorge on their flesh. So this great battle doesn't actually happen. Because when Jesus comes back, he so overwhelms them that they don't even know they've lost yet. He so much destroys them, and, and, and it's not even a fight. If we were to put it into sports analogy, it would be this way. Jesus completely skunks the other team. I mean, Jesus beats the other team so much, they don't even have the ball, ever. They have no defense for what Jesus is going to do. They are not even going to be able to compete in the same arena. Jesus, when he comes back, ends it. And this is what we have to understand. What side are we going to be on? What side do we want to be on? Because even if the world looks like it is winning, and even if the world looks like they have all the power, and even if the world looks like they are beating Christians down, in the end, when Jesus comes, he wins. And so the message that's been consistent throughout the book of Revelation is still consistent here. If you are a Christian, you need to hold on. Because there's going to come a time when Jesus comes, and it's over. And if you're on Jesus' side, it's good. And if you're not, the birds are going to have a feast. What side are you going to be on? We get then to chapter 20, and chapter 20 of Revelation is probably the most controversial uh, verses in the entire Bible, uh, among Christians at least. Uh, This is what it says, I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, holding in his hand a great chain. He sees the dragon, the ancient serpent, he who was the devil or Satan, bound him for a thousand years. He threw him into the abyss, locked him up, and sealed, him over, uh, sealed over him so that he could not deceive the nations until the thousand years had ended. And after that, he must be set free for a short time. And then it goes on. And, and what we have here is what's called a thousand years, the millennium. Uh, and there's lots of different ideas out there. Uh, you can pick up a book and, about it, and you probably would come across a new idea. Uh, There's lots of things people think. People think that this thousand years happens before Jesus comes back. Others think that it's a thousand years that happens when Jesus comes back and he ushers it in. Other people think that it's not a literal thousand years, but rather a spiritual understanding of the church age. And they all have fancy names. There's post-mill. There's amillennialists. There's premillennialists, and they go even fancier than that. There's preterists, there's uh, dispensationalists, there's uh, historical premillennialists. And the answer to this question is, I don't know. My favorite view is, is that of a uh, professor over at Central. Uh, when he was talking about this, he said that his view of the millennium is the panmillennialists. It'll all pan out in the end. And I really think that's, that, that we get caught up in this too much. Because while we're here on earth, whether it's a literal thousand years or not, whether it happens before Jesus comes back or after, that really doesn't matter. Because while we're here on earth, our job is to spread the kingdom. Our job is to tell other people about Jesus. Our job is to tell them about the lamb that was slain for us and for them. 
And that's what we need to be focused on. I think we focus too much on wondering when is Jesus coming back. And we have all these people that have predicted from the time John wrote this until now about when Jesus is coming back. Do you know how many of them have been right so far? Oh yeah, none of them. You know, they're batting zero percent. This is why I do know Jesus, when he's talking to his disciples about when he's going to come back, says, don't worry about it. He says, I don't know. The angels don't know. Only God knows. You guys, be ready. Be watchful. Do what you're supposed to do. Spread the kingdom news. That's what we're supposed to do. And so let's not worry about this stuff. What we do know in the consistent message of the book of Revelation is this. There's going to come a time where Jesus reigns. A thousand years, literal figure, I don't know. And then there's going to come a time that the beast, is, the dragon is let go. And he's going to bring suffering. And, and, and what does that mean? I don't know. But I do know this, it's a short time. Like John doesn't even give days, months, years to it. And so if the message of Revelation is, hold on, Christian, then this is the message in Revelation 20. Hold on, Christian, because the reign of Jesus far outweighs the reign of the dragon. And if you have to suffer for just a little bit, hold on. Because there's going to come a time when we are with Jesus for eternity. And if you can just hold on for this small moment, the reward is going to be great. The message of Revelation is not to tell us when Jesus is going to come back, but to tell us what's going to be like when all this is over. When the world is gone and Jesus comes back, what do we get to experience? And John tells us in Revelation 21 and 22 exactly what that is. Uh, we read this in verses 1 and 2. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth have passed away, and there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And we get this beautiful picture of, of being in heaven. Now, I think that we have this misconception of what heaven's going to be like. So I'm going to ask you a question. I think I know what the answer is. When we go to heaven, what are we going to do for eternity? What are we going to do? This is interactive. Worship God. That's probably the number one answer. Okay, and when we think of worshiping God, what do we think of? Singing. Singing. Yes. Okay, we get to worship God. We get to sing forever. I just want us to understand this. Okay, so we, we have these beautiful hymnals. Okay, there are 628 songs. And so what we often think of is that we are going to open up to joyful, joyful, we adore you, which is number one, has four verses, and we're going to sing all four verses, and then we'll go to Come Thou Found of Every Blessing. We'll eventually get to uh, Amazing Grace, which has 13 verses, okay, so just keep that in mind. All right, we'll sing every variation of it, and, and then once we get done with, with number 628, what are we going to do? Now we're going to get the Baptist hymnal. And start singing it. <laughs> uh, and then maybe we'll get to the Lutheran and the Eastern Orthodox and so on and so forth. And, and we'll write some new ones. Maybe that's what it is. And, and the question is, is forever? Here's where I think we misunderstand. Yes, I think we're going to worship God. And yes, I think that means singing. But I think it's more than that. See, I think 
when we read the Bible about worshiping God, it, it's not always talking about singing. They're not singing every single passage of this. See, I think worshiping God goes beyond that. It goes to the way we live. And I think we're supposed to worship God not just when we get to heaven, but here and now on earth. And so how do we worship God? We worship God with our money and how we spend and how, what we spend. We worship God with our relationships with our spouses and with our children and with our parents. We worship God in how we have conversations in our workplaces and in our schools. We worship God with the way that we live our life in the community. See, worshiping God forever doesn't mean we're going to sing to Him forever. Worshiping God forever means we're going to live the life that we were created to live. And when Adam and Eve were first created, they were created to work and to live and to multiply and to sing. I think that is what it's going to be like. I think we have this misconception of what worship means. It's not just singing. It's living life the way God has ordained it to be lived. And then we get to this idea of going to heaven. And we have this image that, that when it's all over and all said and done, we're going to go up someplace special with God, but that's not really what it says here. Because we're still kind of on earth. And out of the heavens come this new Jerusalem that comes united. And what we're described in the Bible isn't a place we go to, but a place that comes to us. This new heaven, this new earth that are somehow connected together. And so the life that we're living, it's here. Amongst the new creation that God restores to the original intent that he created it to be. Verses 3 and 4, we read that, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among his people. And he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. And he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things have passed away. And what we see is this redone of the creation. And a lot of people, they're going to have to find new jobs. I mean, just think about this for a moment. There's going to be a lot of things that are no longer here. There's not going to be pornography. There's not going to be sex trafficking. There's not going to be prostitution or crime or diseases. And so a lot of people that have established jobs here on earth, they're not going to be needed. You know, just think about this. There's not going to be a need for government entities. There's not going to be a need for CIA or FBI or ATF or even the IRS. Hallelujah, right? I mean, these things are going to be done away with. Doctors, hospitals, nurses, you're going to have to find a new job. And that's good. It's going to be an amazing place. And what John is describing is this place that is beyond understanding in a lot of ways. It's going to be awesome. And it's going to be awesome because there's going to be people there that I just can't wait to meet. People like Abraham. 
And I'll probably have to wait a long line because Abraham is one of these guys that everybody knows, right? And everybody's going to want to question. But my one question for Abraham is this. How could you have such faith to, to leave your family and everything behind and just go to where God wanted you to go? How can you have that much faith? Or people like, like David. And my question for David is, what was it like to stand up to Goliath? Were you afraid even just a little bit? Or Daniel? Daniel? What was going through your mind when they tossed you into the hungry lions? I mean, all these questions of these people, and maybe not even people that are in the Bible, but people that we know. People like my grandma, who through quiet faith influenced so many people that they stood up in their, at her funeral and for 30 minutes just told about what she did in their lives. Grandma, what was it like? And we all know people, whether they're our spouses, our children, our brothers and sisters, our grandparents, that are going to be in heaven, and we get to be with them forever. And we get to talk with them, and we get to ask them questions. That is going to be awesome. And then we get uh, to 22, the last uh, passage of the Bible. And in 22, we read that there was angels showed me a river of the water of life as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. And on each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of this tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their forehead, and there will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. And this final beautiful picture reminds us of what happened at the very beginning. When God planted in the Eden a garden, and he put two trees there that are named, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life. And we're reminded in Genesis chapter 3 of the curse, that when Adam and Eve took the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and they ate it, a curse was brought down on the earth. It is decaying, and mankind is decaying with it. And we're told here in Revelation 22 that everything is being made new. That the tree of life is now here in heaven. And it is for the healing of the nations. And there is no darkness. There is no evil. Because God is there with them. And the God and the Lamb are seated there. And we see their face. And we are their servants. And we worship them forever. And, and, and this is the beautiful thing about heaven, is that even if there wasn't a city with gold or pearly gates, it would still be worth going to, because Jesus is there. And if our family and our friends, if they didn't come along because they were outside of Christ, it would still be worth going, because the Messiah is there. 
If we had to sing for all of eternity the different hymnals and new songs, it would still be worth going because Jesus is there. And it is my prayer and my hope that you will be there with me. And when we get to heaven, we get this beautiful crown. And it is my hope that my crown is bigger than all of yours. Not because I want to be standing out, but because when Jesus comes, we bow down and we lay our crowns before his feet. And when Jesus sees my crown, I want him to say, now that is a life worthy of the king. And it's my hope that that is your hope as well. The message of Revelation, hold on. Christian, hold on. Because there's going to come a time where we are with Jesus forever. Will you hold on? Will you pray with me? Father God, we are grateful for Jesus, the salvation that he brings, and we're grateful for the hope of eternity that we will spend with you. Lord God, I pray that we will hold on for just a moment as we suffer in the name of Christ. I pray that we will hold on so that we can be with you for all of eternity, the reward that you have for those who are faithful and true far outweighs anything that we might face here on earth today. Father God, as we think about this image of heaven, as we think about spending eternity with you, I pray for those who are outside of you right now, for those who are not Christians, who have not given themselves to you in baptism. And I pray, Lord, that you will influence them Help them to understand that it is far better to be on your side and suffer here than to be on the outside when you come back. Come, Lord Jesus, is our prayer. Amen.